Hi, I'm Mandy. And I'm Ben. And this is Behind the Visa Window with ex-visa officers. Where we give the insider's perspective on the U.S. visa interview process. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast, Behind the Visa Window with ex-visa officers. Uh, I'm your host, Mandy Fierbacher, and I am a former consular officer with experience at the U.S. Embassy in China and the U.S. consulates in Mexico and Hong Kong. And I am Ben Artebrun. I was a former consular officer in China and in Bogota, Colombia. So this week, we're going to talk about something that a lot of people in the world are going through right now. We're talking about the F-1 student visa. And actually, this could apply to J-1 uh, visas as well for visiting scholars. But, you know, this is a season where international students are getting prepared to come to the United States to study, whether it's, you know, they're renewing their visas and coming back over or whether it's for the very first time. And of course, this year is extra special because we're in the middle of a pandemic. And, uh, you know, I think, I think a good place to start is program start dates or school start dates. Uh, what do you think about that, Ben? I think it's, it's interesting, our perspective on this specific issue, because I think very few people know how visa officers view school start dates. This is, this is something that probably wasn't too relevant to most student visa applicants in the past, but this year, because of the lack of availability of appointments, it's become a real issue. So a whole lot of our clients have been applying for schools, getting their, getting accepted, getting their I-120s that say, okay, the program start date is August 15th, right? But then our, our clients can't get a visa appointment until September 30th, right? And so they have to apply for an emergency appointment based on that program start date. And the embassies are understaffed right now. They're understaffed with, uh, with their American visa officers and also with local staff because of COVID restrictions. And so they are trying to get as many students in as possible, but they have limited resources. And then how do they choose who to prioritize, right? One student who has a program start date, you know, on this date and another one on this date, they're trying to get them both in there and they just have to kind of go first come first serve. Yes. So then what happens is that a lot of students are given an emergency date, but it still comes after their program start date. I think that's a really good point, Ben. And actually, you know, interestingly enough, I've been getting questions about, you know, from people who haven't even booked their appointment because the first thing they see is that the next available visa appointment is actually after their start date. So they don't know what to do. They don't know the emergency visa appointment process. Can you go through that a little bit? Oh yeah, the, you've got to book as soon as possible because it is first come first served, not just for appointments, but also for the emergency ones, right? right. All things being equal, you're just a student who's got a program start date. If you don't get your request in early enough, then you won't get a, a, an emergency appointment that's early enough for you to get your visa in time for your program start date. So if you see that that, that next visa appointment's not available until say in some cases, you know, June next year, you still need to get your appointment on the books and get that emergency request in there so that they can slot you in as early as possible. That's because right. what may have to happen, what may have to happen, and this is unfortunate for a lot of people that their plans are delayed, but this is just kind of, this is the world right now in the, you know, the, the era of COVID, you might have to hope to get your visa appointment for this fall semester, but maybe you won't get it. Maybe you won't get an appointment until October, right? And then maybe you're going to have to ask your school to move your program start date to the spring semester in January. Mm, mm, that's such a good point. Yeah, so rule number one is to just get your visa appointment 
as soon as possible because you actually need a booked visa appointment in order to request an expedited visa appointment. And so make sure you do that no matter how far down the road it is, you need that appointment to request the expedite. It's such a great point then. Um, so interestingly enough, I don't think a lot of people realize that visa officers actually have this rule that if they know that a student cannot actually make it in time for their program start date that's listed on their I-20, we're actually not allowed to approve the visa. And so this is something important to take note. So if you're a student visa applicant going in for your visa interview, expedited or regular, depending on where you're applying in the world, first check your I-20 to see when school starts. And then what you wanna do is also talk to your international advisor, talk to your DSO to see how flexible that start date is. Because in my conversations with DSOs, and Ben, I'm sure you've talked to some too, but there is a little bit of flexibility. There's not a lot, but there's a little bit. It could be up to a week or 10 days past that date on your I-20. And so once you find out how much flexibility there is, what you'll want to do is ask your international advisor or DSO to update the very last date to the very last date that you can arrive and be on time for your program in the SEVIS system. And you'll want to be prepared to explain that situation at your visa interview if that date is different than what's on your I-20. And you can get a, a new physical hard copy of the I-20 for that, or you can just have them update, update that information and then have that virtually in the system. Because now in most places around the world, they are accepting uh, electronic information for the I-120 the I the I instead of requiring that you actually get the, the physical one, just because of how hard it is to get those moving around the world right now. That's right. And one other thing I'll mention is even if you're not able to get the updated I-20, the, you know, the, the, the emailed copy or the virtual copy, make sure that the DSO still updates it in their system because uh, this was true of a couple of the, uh, the consulates I worked at. But even if it's not correct on the I-20, we will have staff at the consulate that will go into the service system and check to see what the date is to confirm that you can actually arrive by that date. Now, they'll go in and check that only if they think that there's a reason to, to think that that program start date has been moved. So what you yes. need to do is make sure, bring a letter, you know, you've got that, that email printout, but actually it'd be better if they sent you a PDF that you can print out and show, look, I've got from my university saying that they have changed my program start date in the, the online service system. And, you know, please check that to, to confirm just to make sure that you don't get overlooked and they just see, oh, program start date is not realizable. And so we're gonna refuse you. That's another thing I wanna point out. Realizable is the word that they use for that program start date. So it doesn't mean like the program start date can be any time after the visa interview. If your visa interview is today, we're recording this August 13th. If your visa interview is today, and the program start date is August 14th, they're not gonna apply, they're not going to issue that visa because it's not realizable. It's not realistically possible for you to get to the school and start studying by August 14th if you're just doing your visa interview today on August 13th. So, it, and in fact, that's also not just to get the visa because it'll take them, even with an emergency processing, a full day, maybe, maybe two, to get your visa printed, you know, with everything that has to happen behind the scenes after your interview. Uh, and then also, when you arrive at the at the point of entry, and the customs and border patrol officer looks at your your information and your I twenty, they need to also see that it's realizable, right? 
So you can't get your visa and then think, oh, great, I can travel in time, you know, on that date. They need to know that you can get to the school. So if you arrive in San Francisco, but you need to get to, you know, Iowa and you don't have a flight for the next day, they still may determine that that's not realizable and turn you around. So you just got to make sure get that date pushed back as far as possible to make sure that all of that can, can get fit in there so that you can, you know, without anybody questioning whether or not you can get to your program on time, that you'll be able to make it. That's absolutely right. And the reason why we kind of bring this up over and over again is we don't want students to be in a situation where even if they get their visa approved, they get turned around at the port of entry or something happens. Everything that you do has to make it as easy and as simple as possible for the government official to let you do what you want. So in order to make it easy for them, you have to point things out to them. I love what you said, Ben, about you know, making sure you have a letter from the school or making sure you bring up during your interview, hey, you know, my program start date has actually been changed because the officers are not gonna know that. The local staff are not gonna know that. So you want to make sure that you make it clear to them to help them make a decision in your favor and to help you in your process. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But there's also the, the issue that a lot of our clients have run into when doing this is requesting that emergency appointment, right? Because you're, you're almost everywhere in the world right now in order to get a visa appointment on time for your program that starts this semester or even next semester, you have to request one of these emergency appointments. And everyone asks, asks, asks us about this, but it's hard to give anybody any kind of general advice because the process is so different depending on where you're applying for a visa. Mm -hmm. A lot of places in the world right now, um, if you're applying for a student visa for the first time, you're automatically given an expedite, but that's not true everywhere, just a lot of places. Um, so you'll want to check to see if you're someone that needs to actually make the additional expedite request. But one other thing we wanna mention after having heard back from a lot of our clients and students is that if you were previously refused a visa and now you're trying to get a second expedited appointment, you may not be able to get it uh, because what we have seen from the State Department is they're prioritizing first-time visa applicants for those expedites. So that makes that one single interview even more important that you're prepared, you get everything done right the first time so that you don't end up in a situation where you're refused and then you can't get an expedited request approved the next time to make it into right. school. First impressions matter. Just like in real life, where first impressions are the most important, for your visa interview, the first impression is always the most important. It's the one where you have the best chance of getting your visa. Um, and even just to get your visa appointment now, you know, considering what's going on in the world, you need to be ready to get your visa that first time. Obviously, you know, you're gonna have to make some investment in talking to the experts and figuring out how you can ensure you're gonna get your visa um, because you don't wanna get that refusal on the record because then you might not uh, even be able to get a new appointment in time for your program. And when you do, it's going to be an uphill battle once you've already been refused. Yes. And the more times that you're refused, the harder it becomes to get that visa approved. Mm -hmm. And that's actually exactly what Ben and I do here at Argo. You know, we're ex-visa officers. We work with students one-on-one um, -on -one to help them be prepared for that very important visa interview, just because the stakes are so high. Yeah, I had a, a client who had just uh, was from Russia and had just applied for their student visa in Kazakhstan and was refused 
Now, maybe they don't know why, but you and I know why. Uh, when you show up as a third country national, they do not know anything about the circumstances uh, the, of, of your country. They don't know anything about income, career prospects, education. They've not been trained in any of this. So they just have a low level of confidence in, in terms of how much they understand about your situation, that their confidence is low, their understanding is low, the probability that they're going to refuse is high. So this applicant was refused. Uh, and then he came to us and he told me that he was applying next in Poland because he was able to get a visa appointment because he couldn't get any in Russia. And I told him immediately, do not do that. You were a third country national applying in Kazakhstan, you were refused. If you go to another country where you're also a third country national, they're gonna think, okay, they're visa shopping. They're, they're probably not even gonna give you the time of day. They're just gonna refuse you outright. And those two refusals, then you, you, go back to, you go back to Russia and they see, oh, what's this person been doing visa shopping all around the world? They're not likely to issue your visa or they're much less likely to issue your visa after that too. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you're in this situation, I would recommend not just going to a random country where you can find an open visa appointment time, right? There are obviously exceptions to this and they're all very unique and one-off, like where somebody might get a good chance applying as a third country national, right? Does your family have any connection there? Is this a place where a lot of people from your country go to apply for visas? For instance, mm -hmm. the US uh, doesn't have a, an embassy in Iran. So Iranians have to apply outside of Iran. But that doesn't mean that they can just apply anywhere. The US sends Farsi speaking visa officers to uh, Yerevan, to Dubai, and to Ankara in Turkey, uh, mm -hmm. specifically to interview Iranian Persian speaking applicants there. If they show up somewhere else, like if they show up in Ukraine, for instance, there's no one there that speaks Persian. There's no one there that un understands anything about Iran or has been trained mm -hmm. in anything. So they're, they're gonna have that low confidence. So if you're gonna be a third country national, you have to go somewhere where they're going to be very confident looking at your case. I think that's such a good point, Ben. I actually responded to a client earlier this week about this exact issue. And what I said was, and, and I actually do webinars and talk about this all the time is if you're going to be applying as a third country national, you will want to do some research and go to a place where a lot of people from your home country go to apply. If you're in the special circumstance where there's, you know, no uh, presence um, of the U.S. there, for example, Russia right now, there's no consular appointment. So Russians do have to go to a third country to apply. So find out where most Russians are going to apply and go there because if that visa officer at the embassy or consulate, they regularly see Russian nationals coming through to apply for visas, then they will feel much more confident making a decision um, instead of thinking that maybe there's some sort of ulterior motive in, in you applying uh, in a different location. That's a really good point. I think that kind of highlights the principle of making things simple for, for the officers. If you're, yes. if you're from a country that they've never encountered a visa applicant from, all of a sudden it's not simple for them. It's very complicated, right? So you always, you know, the way you present your information, even where you show up for your interview can contribute to just making that simple, making it uncomplicated, Re removing layers of complexity from the visa interview so that they feel comfortable issuing the visa. Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Ben. Hmm. So we've also got a lot, of, um, a lot of clients that have been telling us more so than we would expect that right now that they're in, just extended 221G status, administrative processing. Um, and I think that's probably because just, you know, the shutdowns all over the world for so long, 
they've kind of lost a little bit of expertise and experience. And so their, their, you know, cases are kind of falling through the cracks. What do you think about that, Mandy? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, sort of related to the topic we were talking about before, there's a lot more third country nationals applying right now because of the pandemic. They're not able to find visa appointment availability. And 221G administrative processing basically just means that the visa officer isn't ready to make a decision at that moment. And so there's a lot of hesitation from visa officers. And whenever they hesitate, they might just put you in this pending status while they figure out what to do. They may not want to do anything. And so that's why these, you know, these uh, wait times are so long for 221G cases. And again, I think the theme of all of this is how do you make things really simple for the visa officer to understand your situation so that they would feel confident approving the visa? Mm -hmm. What do you think someone should do when they've been in 221G, right? Obviously, people know when there's a when there's a check being done, right? They know they've mm-hmm. been asked for some documents. They send in those documents. And, you know, if it's routine in the country where you're from, it's kind of something that's to be expected. But then other times people, you know, may have been told, oh, I can't, I can't make a decision right now. I'll just go mm-hmm. home and wait. Mm-hmm. Maybe they kept your passport. Maybe they gave you your passport back. Mm-hmm. You go online into the CX system and you see, you know, pending, or maybe you see that the status has been changed or refused, but you've never been contacted by the, by the consulate or the embassy. What do you mm. suggest people do in these cases? I would recommend that they reach out on a fairly regular basis just to make sure that their case is not being forgotten. So perhaps every week or every you know week and a half, every 10 days, make sure that you're reaching out to the embassy and consulate. And of course you wanna be very polite um, you know, but you do want to remind them that, hey, you're still there waiting for the visa. I've heard from clients who say, you know, <laughs> and immigration attorneys too, that they have this, you know, don't poke the bear theory. They're nervous that, you know, if they ask too many times that that's going to annoy the visa officer and, you know, and then they'll probably just like keep it in extended waiting status. So hopefully, you know, as long as you are polite and to the point, you do want to make sure that you are um, mm-hmm. consistently reminding them of this issue. I, yeah, I would completely disagree with that. Don't poke the bear um, mentality because yeah. if if I see that someone has applied for a student visa, for instance, and they applied in May, and this is a real life example, they applied in May, and then they were put in two two one G, and then for some reason, whatever the reason is, no one ever contacted them again or made any action on their case. Uh, and I'll, I'll say, I'll tell you why that could happen here in just a second, but if they've waited two or three months without contacting the embassy at all, and then finally I find that I would think, well, this doesn't seem like someone with a real plan to go to the U S they just, they came in for an interview and then just left and never, never contacted us again. It seems like it wasn't that important of a plan. Right. Yes. So that can actually look very bad that yes. this wasn't a real thing that you were trying to do. Right. Yes. That it was just kind of like, oh, you just threw it out there into the wind and then just kind of forgot about it. Right. Yes. Now, yes. why can a case get into that status? The US government is comprised of human beings, just like any other organization, and human beings can make mistakes. Um, and also, you know, the government doesn't have the governments everywhere all around the world and all throughout history have been known for being inefficient. It's kind of just an intrinsic trait of, of governments. You're, you're going to have some inefficiency built in there because it's not the private sector. Uh, and so there's, there's, no, there's nothing that reminds officers, hey, there's this 221G case pending that you should work on, right? They put it in 221G and then it's just all on them to follow up on it. 
right? Mm -hmm. So maybe they thought, okay, this applicant from Russia is showing up here in Poland. I'm not really sure what's up. I need to, I want to ask somebody something else about this. I want to do some research. And they take that passport, they take a case, and they put it aside. They have to remember to go back and look at it. They might mm -hmm. not, or maybe they do. Maybe they go and look at it. They do a little research and then lunchtime comes around. They put it in a drawer, they go to lunch and they don't say oh and then they go they interview somebody else and they get another problem case that they want to investigate and all of a sudden it moves lower and lower down in the stack right yes so yes. There, people can you know they might not do it intentionally but cases can kind of get forgotten about yes and so absolutely. you know if, if that's happened to you you need to reach out uh i know every embassy is different every consulate's different there are formal ways to reach out there are in, you know informal ways you can go on the websites you can find the section sometimes they have online forms that you can fill out mm -hmm. less and less these days do they have email addresses that you can actually contact them by um, but find find some way to contact them to mm -hmm. let them know hey my case has been with you for 6 weeks and i haven't heard anything right mm -hmm. because when they when they find that out and they see oh we 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 dropped the ball on this they, it might not make them more likely to issue your case. It will make them more likely to give you a proper review, right? When they feel, oh gosh, we actually have done a disservice by not doing this in a timely manner, they're going to go through all the steps. They're not going to give you a cursory, just kind of an offhanded, okay, you know, we refuse you. No, they're going to look at your case because they felt like they didn't really give it attention in uh, in in its uh, in, in an appropriate amount of time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you got to reach out. You got to get in touch with them. It's all your responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. You know the squeaky wheel still does get the grease, and so make sure you're not forgotten about. And also, you know, consular officers are just extremely, um, you know, mobile. We're always getting rotated around to different sections. Sometimes we go on temporary assignments to other countries, and then all of a sudden, that officer who had a pile of pending cases. Will just get you know given to some other officer and so you want to follow very closely and i think this is also a really good thing to remember is that you're in charge of your own destiny with your visa mm -hmm. case so you want to make sure that you're the one following very closely reaching sure. out all the time giving good explanations um and, and you know if you have questions about a particularly problematic case you know email us at hello at argovisa.com we would love to help um this is what we do and this is what we know it's all on you. You are the only person that has a vested interest in you getting that visa. Your parents can't do it for you. A visa agent can't do it for you. We can't even do it for you. We can prepare you, but then you've got to go into that visa interview by yourself and get that visa, right? You've got to know, you've got to know what you need to do. You got to be prepared um, to go in there and put the information in front of the officer that's going to get you that visa. So with 221G, still, no one's taking care of your case other than you. You've got to reach out. Um, but yeah, when you go in for the visa interview as well, that's all, it's all on you. No preparation by anybody else beforehand is going to ensure that you get the visa. The DSO at the university, the visa agent, a lawyer, it, it doesn't matter. It's got to be you. Um, so what, what do you see are the main reasons, Mandy, why F1 student visa applicants would get refused? So, you know, I think that's, it's actually more difficult to answer that question than one would expect, because I think most people come to us saying, I was refused for this one reason. And usually it ends up being the last question they were asked by the visa officer before the denial. And they think that's the reason, but really 
as visa officers, we are taught to look at the totality of the circumstances. We're looking at a person's entire life situation. We're looking at their family history and background and educational history and travel history. And then we have to make a, a decision within just a couple of minutes on whether or not you are eligible to travel to the US to do what you say you're going to do. And so for students, I think some common reasons are, um, you know, when you're English is not up to par. Maybe you don't speak English very well, or you do, but you're really nervous. And when put on the spot, you know, you hesitate, you're not sure what to say. And sometimes that can come across to the visa officer as not being, you know, prepared as a student to go study, um, you know, in a foreign country in a different language. And so you will really want to make sure that your English is, you know, that you're able to have a you know, a short conversation with a visa officer. And one thing I want to mention is, you know, trying to speak English, say you're a student who's going to go study English as a second language, you're not fluent yet. And it's understandable, right? You have this program that you're ready to start in the US. Even you attempting to speak English and having a very simple conversation with the visa officer will mean something because it means that you're willing to put yourself out there. You're willing to try to do this thing that you're going to go study in the U.S. This is a problem that I used to see all the time with ESL students, English as a second language students, is in their heads, they're thinking, well, I want to go to America to study English. It's the best place to, you know, it's the best environment for me to practice. I don't speak any English right now, so I'm going to go to my visa interview and tell the visa officer, can I speak, you know, Chinese or can I speak, um, you know, Russian or Spanish because I'm going to go to the U.S. to study. And to visa officers, not, that's not really a good enough reason to not be able to communicate for a few minutes very simply in English. So for the ESL students that try, we give that person a lot of credit and we're much more likely to approve their visas. So that's one reason. Oh, Ben, you're on mute. Thank you, Mandy. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think that falls under the category, the broader category of academic credentials. If someone doesn't speak English well and they're preparing to go to, to study in the US, it kind of shows a lack of commitment to their academic progress, right? Their academic path towards studying in the US. I kind of think of it like um, there are basically two, two main factors that can get you a, a student visa. And one is academic excellence, and the other one would be um, financial stability, right? So let's put both of those together and come up with the, uh, the best possible visa applicant for a student visa that you can imagine, which be, would be a student who has been accepted into Harvard University, right? So top university that you could, that you could apply for, um, and also comes from a family of millionaires, right? So all of a sudden you see here, okay, well, this person is financially extremely stable. And also they have demonstrated academic success, academic excellence by being able to be admitted by the best university in America, right? So that's a, that's a no brainer. But then let's say that you've only got one of those two factors as part of your, your equation. On, on the one hand, you could have someone who's accepted to Harvard University, but they come from a very poor family of no means. Let's say that the family has no savings, no property, the parents are uneducated, um, but the child has, the student has been able to achieve academic excellence has, has been accepted by Harvard, right? So then there's, there's still an obstacle to overcome in that interview, which is the financial instability, but you have the academic excellence as the highlight, right? On the other hand, you could have the, uh, the extremely financially stable student from the very rich family of millionaires who has not really dedicated 
himself to his studies and uh, and has not made good grades, not doesn't have good test scores, maybe doesn't have the greatest English and is going to a, a college that doesn't have very stringent admission standards, right? Now, I would know, okay, this student is definitely not gonna go to the US to work unauthorized because they're a millionaire. They don't wanna work you know, in a restaurant or on a construction site or somewhere where you can work without work authorization easily when they're just a millionaire back in their own country, right? So both of these students may intend to go to the US and study in their programs uh, just as they are intended to, but the officers might think, okay, but what about what about this? You know, this lack of academic excellence. What about this lack of financial stability? And then, so you've got to focus on the highlights of your resume, right? Mm -hmm. To show, oh, oh, yeah, maybe I'm not the best student, but look at what my family has here in my country. Right? Mm -hmm. We're extremely, extremely stable here. I have so much incentive to come back here after my studies and mm -hmm. not to stay in the U.S. unauthorized. Now, mm -hmm. on the other side of that. And this is a very unfortunate situation because everyone, I believe, should have the right to get a good education and better themselves, um, regardless of their inherited, you know, familial situation. And, you know, not everybody's a genius. Uh, not everybody's going to get a perfect score on the SAT or the GRE. But there are some people who won't have academic excellence and also will not have financial stability. Yeah. That's where it's really difficult to prove to that visa officer that you intend to study as the visa has prescribed and that you're not going to do something else. That's absolutely right. And I'll just add to that, Ben. I feel like those are definitely the two main things that are considered. And then if you have any sort of special circumstance, anything unique about your situation, that makes your case a little bit more complicated. So this could be something as simple as, you know, you have a lot of family in the U.S., or perhaps you've never traveled anywhere and this is the first time you're going overseas and you want to study in the United States. All of these are considered complications in your case, and that could make it more likely for the visa officer to refuse your case. So you want to make it simple, but you also want to make sure that you know, you're prepared to explain your situation in a very truthful and honest way. Exactly. Always, always simplifying removing complexity and always answering questions in such a way that doesn't give the visa officer more questions, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're always answering questions. You're not giving them more questions and more doubts. Mandy, we've got some, uh, some questions that people had submitted. How about I throw one of those at you right now? Sure. Okay. Let's see here. Take it. I, I feel like this is a really good one because it's, uh, it's very common. I'm, a, I'm applying to a master's of business program in the U.S. Uh, at a university. Um, but I already have one master's degree in finance uh, from my own country. I'm 38 years old. Can I still get a visa? That is a great question. And you're right. We do get that all the time. So visa officers, whether or not it's warranted, they take issue with people getting multiple master's degrees. So if you're a student in this situation where maybe you already have one master's degree and then you're applying for a different one, um, you'll want to help the visa, under, the visa officer understand your mindset and why you decided to switch, um, switch majors 
why you're getting that additional degree. How does that make sense for you? Because ultimately the goal is to have your situation make sense to an American officer. Um, and just because something makes sense to you doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to make sense to the officer. And so definitely preparing with an expert, understanding your full situation would be a great way to uh, allow us to help you strategize uh, for how exactly to answer questions like this, because you know, you might have a great reason, but it might not make sense. So let's help you flesh it out and make sure that it's clear to the visa officer that, um, you know, this is something that you want to do and how does it benefit you? Right. Right. I, when I was thinking about this one, cause I, you know, I just sprung this one on you, but I actually had some time to think about it beforehand. Um, in a situation like this, having a master's degree is great evidence in your favor when you're applying for a U.S. visa, right? If this person was applying for a, a tourist visa, it's almost guaranteed that they would get their they would get their visa, depending on the country where they're applying from, of course. But someone with a master's degree is usually going to be very professional, very stable in their own country. It's just because of that weird, well, not not necessarily weird, but to the American officers' ears, unexpected academic path from master's degree to master's degree, right? They think this is a lateral move. This isn't like a, an upward move, right? And just because they don't like it, they don't understand it, they might refuse it. I think that in this case, it would be worth mentioning uh, that, well, a master's degree in from my own country is not nearly as valuable to me on my resume or in the workplace as a master's degree from the US. So it actually is raising my, my credentials and my qualifications a lot. Like this really makes my resume stand out a lot. Plus, this applicant, uh, in their case, they're a non-traditional student, right? They're not on the, the path from being a, a, a high school student to undergrad student to grad student to PhD student, you know, unbroken. They've obviously been working for quite a while in between a master's degree and this, this, this current application. Um, so this person is on a career path, right? So if you say that, uh, well, and why a master's and not a PhD? Well, the master's is one year, two years perhaps, right? And then I'm back on my career path with a higher salary, with better job prospects. I don't need, I don't want to go do a six-year PhD, right? I'm I'm on a career path. This is part of my career development, not not a change of of, of careers into academia or something like that, right? What now? Obviously, that might not be this person's you know career plan or situation, but whatever it is, I'm sure that there's a real reason, right? And the key is to just not be like a deer in the headlights. And just not have a response that sounds real. Let them know about your real concerns and your real plans and how you deliberated about it. So that it's, it sounds like a very relatable, you know, decision that they can, that they could see themselves making as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's such a good point, Ben. Um, I would completely agree with that. Uh, you want a question from my side? Sure. Sure. Hit me. Okay. So this person wrote in and said, um, a Chinese national I was refused a visa in Beijing, and now a visa agent says I should try to apply in Shanghai. What would you recommend that I do? So for 90% of people, I'm going to say you don't want to do that. You don't want to, to change in a plan in Shanghai. I don't know if, if the visa agent was saying, oh, because they have visa appointment availability in Shanghai, which sometimes is the case, you know, you can move from one one consulate to another and there's more availability, or maybe it's they're saying, oh, they're more strict in Beijing, they're gonna be more lenient in Shanghai. Visa agents, some of them are better than others. Many of them 
they need to sell you some advice, right? So they're going to give you advice when you ask for it because they, they're going to charge you for this advice and they've got to tell you something, right? It doesn't mean that that advice is always the best. So if you're from Beijing or around Beijing um, and you've been refused there and you have no connection to Shanghai at all, and you're just going there because you think it's more lenient or because there's a visa appointment available, I would say 90% of the time, do not do that. In Shanghai, they're gonna think, what's this person doing here? They just think that they're gonna show up here and we're gonna give them a different answer than Beijing. Like, it's kind of like a kid going to their dad and saying, hey, can I have some candy? Dad says no, and the kid runs to mom asking for candy. And mom says, did you already ask your dad, right? Yeah, and dad said, no, what's mom gonna say? Well, then why are you coming to me? I'm saying no too, right? You can't, yeah. you can't expect to, to just play us like that. And that's what they, they call it visa shopping. Um, and that's how they're going to think about it. Now, there are some, some circumstances. And I have counseled one client on this. He was from Shanghai, this exact example, actually. He was from Shanghai, from right outside of Shanghai. But because he was going to university in Beijing, he applied for his F1 for master's degree in Beijing. Mm -hmm. And he was refused. Mm -hmm. Uh, there were there were visa appointments available in Shanghai, and he was back in his hometown, and so he was going to apply in Shanghai. And that's when I told him, okay, that's actually okay. But even though it's okay, and I know it's okay, you need to make sure that those visa officers know why you're in Shanghai. Mm -hmm. First thing when you go in there, you need to let them know, hey, I have a good reason to be here. Why why are you here if you refused in Beijing? My hometown is 20 minutes outside of Shanghai and I, I graduated and I live there now and I didn't want to have to travel all the way back to Beijing for another interview. Mm. That's a reasonable explanation that lets them know, okay, this applicant's not just visa shopping. This applicant mm -hmm. actually has a real reason to be at this new consulate. Right. Yeah. I love that then. And I feel like this really also showcases just how specific visa advice can be. You know, I think when people run into a visa issue, whether they've been refused a visa or stuck in pending status, you know, your sort of gut reaction is to immediately go on an internet forum and start researching and figuring out what other people do. And I think that is exactly the wrong thing to do because visa advice has to be so specific. You know, even some of this advice that you're hearing from us, it's tailored for specific people situations based on you know, where they're living, where they're going to school now, their family circumstances, where have they traveled? And so it is very, very difficult to give one size fits all advice, which is why I think that you know, a session with Argo with an ex-visa officer is so valuable because you will have an officer, somebody who used to make these decisions day after day at the visa window in a couple of minutes, you know, whether to approve or refuse somebody's visa, they will look at your situation in its totality and give you advice that is accurate and fits your specific circumstances, not you know your family members' circumstances or your colleagues or your friends, something specifically tailored for you that we know will be helpful and useful for you and accurate. Indeed, yes, very much so. Everything is, uh, is individual to your own circumstances. Absolutely. Okay, I have actually one other question for you, Ben, and I think this okay. one will be really useful for our listeners. Okay, so this person said, uh, I am a housewife. I've been a housewife for 10 years, but it's always been my dream to go study English in the U.S. and start my own business. Um, do you have any recommendations for me in getting my visa approved? That's one where we can go back to those principles that I was talking about earlier. Going to study English in the U.S. requires no special academic credentials, right? You cannot, anybody can apply to an English language program and be accepted um, 
you know, regardless of what degrees you may have, uh, regardless of the level of English that you have. So the, their acceptance into that program, that English language program, is not really dispelling any of the doubts that the visa officer might have. So you're going to have to focus on the other side, the financial stability. 100% you're gonna to have to go on in that direction. So it's like, okay, you wanna start this business. Okay, well, if you're a housewife, what I'm thinking immediately and what I would start with in a consultation would be, well, if you're, the, if you're not working, then someone's working, right? So who is working in the family? Is your spouse working? Where's the money coming from? Um, if, if you're not married, you know, is there family money? Are there properties? Are there investments, right? What can we highlight that shows your you know, supreme stability in your finances in your life that shows that you can afford to go and, and study English, you know, we'll say at, at middle age, depending on the applicant's age, where you can go and go to the U.S. and study English at middle age. And it's still like, you know, is not going to interrupt your career, not going to put, be a strain on your finances. Um, I'm going to have to really figure out what are those things that we can highlight to the visa officer. Absolutely. And also wanting to start the business. Um, that's just kind of an aspiration that I don't think is that key to it. Mm -hmm. But if it's like, well, why do you want to do this? Right. You do. Yeah. You want to have a plan, not just, and if you're going to say that it's to start a business, it can't just be some ephemeral idea that like, Oh, I'd kind of like to have a business. You need mm -hmm. to have something concrete. Mm -hmm. I 100% agree with you, Ben. Would is you have any other advice for them? Yeah, I think those would be the main points I would touch upon, you know, exactly what put them in this mindset and why now, you know, why now after 10 years of being a housewife, you know, maybe you have really good reasons, you know, for the last 10 years, you've been raising your kids and now they're finally grown and you have some time, you have some free time, you want to figure out what you want to do with your life. But those things are not going to naturally come up, uh, you know, to the forefront of the visa officer's mind. You have to get them there. And, and I think this question also brings up a really good topic of non-traditional students. Anytime you're a non-traditional student, which is basically, you know, a visa officer's definition of somebody who's not going straight into undergraduate, you know, at the age of 18, um, you know, if you're an older student, if you've been out of work for a while, if you, you know, just anything that, you know, is different in your situation will make you a non-traditional student. And in those circumstances, you have to be extra prepared because you will get more questions, you will get more scrutiny from the visa officer, and you have to be prepared for every single question without hesitating, without deer in headlights, because, you um, the first inclination the visa officer will have is to refuse the visa. And it takes less than a second to do that. That is right. And uh, so in that vein, you know, we want to invite everybody, submit your questions because I know we can give some general advice and we can answer some questions uh, regarding other people's cases, but you wanna know about your case. So send us an email at hello at argovisa.com, or you can go to argovisa.com and you could submit a question there. Mention the podcast, say that you'd like your question to be answered on the podcast, and we will select uh, the most representative ones for our next podcast episode. Absolutely. We really look forward to hearing your questions and we're happy to answer them. We're really here to help you. Yeah. Well, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Yeah. See you next time. Thanks for listening.